This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Sometimes advice isn't just bad. It's delusional. That's what Jean Twangy writes in her new book, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. She makes this comment about advice about the most optimistic and self-confident generation in history. That's my generation. I'm on the older end of the spectrum. It's the millennials. Here's the advice that we heard over and over growing up. Just be yourself. Believe in yourself and anything is possible. Express yourself. And you have to learn to love yourself before you can love someone else. Well, Gene's counterpoint is this. What if you're a jerk or even a serial killer? No, not anything is possible. You're delusional. She writes this, quote, people who really love themselves are called narcissists and they make horrible relationship partners. That's tough medicine for us millennials, but she's right. I felt understood in her book. And it helped me to understand other generations, both older and younger, because in many ways we have less in common with each other than ever before. Dr. Twangy writes this, the breakneck speed of cultural change means that growing up today is a completely different experience from growing up in the 1950s or the 1980s or even the 2000s. Twangy is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and widely published researcher. The book is full of important insights. She describes same-sex marriage as the most rapid change of public opinion on a social issue in history. And not coincidentally, she writes that, or she, she says that all signs point to further retreat from religion. And in place of religion, we get politics. And she warns this, world history suggests that transferring religious beliefs into politics will not end well. I had to agree with her that, with her sense that optimism has been lost in the United States since the Great Recession, and that our society, built on abstract ideas, depends on trust and truth that we don't often enjoy today. Generations is a bracing book and an important one, whether you're a parent or a pastor or politician or just want to learn more about yourself and your neighbors. And I look forward to talking about it with her now. Dr. Twangy, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Uh, Right away, you make a big claim. You write this, When you are born has a larger effect on your personality and attitudes than the family who raised you does. 
Now, I know, Gene, that for many of my listeners, that's scary. They, they work hard to be good parents and instill certain values and encourage certain beliefs. So would you suggest they're just wasting their time? Not exactly. So I'm a parent myself. I have three kids. And, you know, this statement recognizes two things. So first, that family environment doesn't have as big of an impact on personality and behavior as many people would think, but that when you grow up and your culture has a bigger impact than than many people would think. But I don't think people, especially parents, should take out of that that it's all hopeless, per se, more that your kids um, are who they are from the time they're born. And most parents know that, especially if you have more than one child, you see how they're different from day one. And your job is to try to shepherd them through our current cultural moment with all of its challenges and have them come out on the other side as a productive adult. I once heard someone say, when you're a parent, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. And I thought that was so insightful and such a great way to think about it. Well, tell me more what you mean by that. What, what difference does that make? Well, I think it makes a difference because in modern parenting, the message is often you want your child to be happy at every moment and that that's the goal. But that's not the goal because what makes them happy in the short term is often what they don't, not what they need for the long term. So our job isn't really to make our kids happy. It's to help them become productive adults. And sure, if they can be happy along the way, that's great. But those, those two are sometimes going to be in conflict, and we have to think long-term in those circumstances. Uh, it makes me think, there was a, a conversation I had recently with a fellow parent. We have third graders. We were noticing that in our public school, there was a significant increase in emphasis on character formation. Um, this is a pretty conservative community overall, um, but we were still kind of taken aback by, by that emphasis on, on character, on behavior, how you treat one another. And she asked the teachers you know, what that was about, and they said, well, about seven years ago or so, we started to see really dramatic changes for the worse in terms of behavior for kids. I couldn't really uh, you're the you're the person to ask this question to. My initial thought was maybe it's the millennial kids, millennials kids that are finally hitting school. Have you heard that anywhere else? Is that local, or would you attribute it to anything else? Yeah, well, you know, as you know from reading the book, I I like to when I can, you know, rely on on really solid national data, and I don't know of any solid national data on say for elementary school students anyway on on those types of factors. Um, but certainly we do know that kids in that age group are spending a lot more time inside and on devices and less time outside and less time being independent than they were a generation or two ago. So when they get to school and then they have to figure out how to behave, they just don't have as much experience with those types of situations. And that may be part of the problem. Yeah, it just seems that millennial parents have an expectation of child direction a lot more than some previous generations, at least in what I pick up on talking with them. Now, a lot of the, the, the aspects you talk about with generations depend primarily on technology. And you write this, technological change isn't just about stuff. It's about how we live, which influences how we think, feel, and behave. 
Now, I've been reading your work for a long time, and you've deeply shaped my own thinking and teaching on this on this point. But I have also learned that sometimes people disagree strongly. Um, they always want to push back and say, it's not technology, it's ideas. This goes back centuries. Or they say, it's all about money. You know, that's, that's the only thing that really motivates people. So why do you choose to attribute so much to technology? Well, you know, the traditional theory of generational differences is about events. You know, that each generation is shaped by wars, pandemics, terrorist attacks, um, you know, economic cycles, and that's what makes them who they are. But that doesn't capture why it's so different to live now than it was to live 200 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. You have really, technology is really at the root of that. So technology has direct effects. So things like social media and smartphones and labor-saving devices and airplanes and air conditioning and better medical care. But then it also has these downstream effects because it does affect values. So technology makes it possible for cultures to be more individualistic, more focused on the self and less on social rules, more valuing, valuing of equality, more putting the self first. It also slows down the life cycle. Better medical care, you get longer lifespans. That's one of the reasons kids are less independent. It's why teens in high school are less likely to get their driver's license or have a paid job or drink alcohol or go out on dates compared to previous generations. It's why young adults marry later and have kids later and settle into careers later. It's also why 60 is the new 50 and middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents or grandparents did. So the whole life cycle has slowed down and at the root of that is technology. So, so I, I wouldn't make the claim that all cultural change or all generational change comes from technology, but a remarkable amount of it can be traced back there in one way or another. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're often in these arguments where somebody will be asking about a lot of the changes with mental illness, and they'll suggest any, anything from September 11, 2001, to the Great Recession, to the political upheavals, to the pandemic. And you're saying those can all have an effect, but technology is the real distinguishing characteristic here, or has more of an effect. Would, would that be an accurate summation? It would, particularly for teens and young yeah. adults. Um, when we look at the mental health statistics for those groups, the pattern is really clear and really consistent and, and really, really concerning. So uh, what you see, say if you trace it, and like let's just take you know the last 20 years or so, is that rates of depression and anxiety and self-harm and suicide were either stable or actually going down between say, the early 2000s, and about 2011 or 2012. Then at that point, they suddenly start to go up with, for example, teen clinical level depression doubled between 2011 and 2019. I chose 2019 as that endpoint on purpose to show it happened before the pandemic hit. Yeah, because there's been a lot of attention, you know, the adolescent mental health crisis recently, but it's often in the same breath, people saying, oh, it's because of the pandemic. It started a good eight years before the pandemic. So if, you know, if you trace it over that whole time, the Great Recession barely budges mental health. 
it doesn't budget at all for teens. Uh, and for adults, there's just like a, a little bit of an uptick in poor mental health, and that's it. Um, you don't see it for September 11th either when you go, take the data that goes back further. It barely budges it. Um, the pandemic, yes, depression continued to increase for teens during that time. But then it's it increased at about the same rate that it had been increasing since 2012. So why 2012? That happens to be the first year the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's also around the same time that social media changed, that it became something not just that say about half of teens are doing every day, something that's kind of optional, to something 75 or 80% of teens are doing every day. So it became almost mandatory. It's also about the time Facebook bought Instagram, yeah. social media became much more visual. Yeah. Well, you um, we'll come back to some of these topics. You, you alluded to this earlier, and I think it's essentially what you see throughout the entire book is a chicken and egg dynamic between technology and individualism. Did technology give us individualism or did individualism give us technology? It seems like you, you, you come again and again back to the interplay between these two. How, how are we supposed to think about that? Yeah, I mean, for, I think for the most part, it's technology driving individualism. That technology makes it possible for people to live alone and be more independent. It gives people more leisure time to be able to focus on, on themselves. Um, it creates circumstances where we can value equality more. Um, safer gender roles is a great example because a more service-based white-collar economy um, tends to favor, if anything, the skills that, that women are usually good at as opposed to, say, physical strength. And now that we have lots of uh, machinery to do those types of jobs is not quite as necessary. So that's, that's, that's where you get the causal arrow from technology to individualism. The two do play with each other, though, because you can certainly see the influence of individualism in how people use technology. So that we have, say, you know, iPads, that then the whole family can watch their own show. Well, if it wasn't for individualism, maybe people wouldn't want to do that. Um, and then same, same thing with taking selfies and the emphasis on um, you know, self-focus on social media and things like that. So it, social media has, you know, interplayed with individualism in different ways. Uh, it used to be a much more attention-seeking thing. Now that it's become more mandatory, if anything, it's something that seems to undermine self-esteem because everybody else's life right. looks so glamorous and perfect. Right. Now, another application of your, your work on technology, your research on technology is what you've alluded to earlier, the slower life. Um, now, do we age and kind of physically we age slower, um, but also just how we progress through a lot of life stages. So do we age more slowly through those stages, especially marriage and childbearing because of technology or because of individualism? It's, so, it's definitely some of both. So technology is at the core because that leads to you know longer life expectancy it also is the reason why education takes longer to finish so we were talking about millennials earlier millennials are the the generation that set records in terms of college education more millennials have gotten a college degree than any previous generation and that's because it's more necessary to succeed in the economy today which is more sophisticated and requires that that higher level of education um, for many jobs, certainly not all. And individualism absolutely plays into it as well, that 
people are just more likely in an individualistic society to have the thought, well, you know, I want to, I want to enjoy being young and I want to wait to get married until I'm a little older and I want to wait to have kids, you know, until I'm more settled down. I want to take that time to enjoy my independence. That's a more individualistic way of thinking. And I always want to be clear with these things. When I talk about individualism or collectivism for that matter, um, I, I'm not making a value judgment. Each cultural system has its advantages and disadvantages. There's trade-offs involved in both. Neither one of them is all bad or all good. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Brad, Brad Wilcox is a sociologist that I read quite a bit, and he talks about a lot of these same phenomena. And one of the things he observes, and I'm sure he'll expand on in his, his forthcoming book on marriage, is that you might be able to see some social or even economic effects from fewer children and delayed marriage. And, and a society might decide we want to incentivize childbirth and marriage for social reasons. But what he's found is that it's not really the incentives necessarily. It's simply the lifestyle. People have chosen that they do not want children. It's not because they can't afford it necessarily. And you touch on that with millennials being the richest generation of all time at their at their stage. And contrary in life. to popular belief. And yes, <laughs> well, corrected for inflation. I always have to throw that in because people always assume, well, you didn't correct for inflation. Yep. It corrects for inflation. Uh, that was that was one of the things that stood out to me. And I I bought a house again, I'm an older millennial and I bought a house right out of college. It was pretty rare. So I was on both ends of what you talked about. I was like a Gen Xer losing all of that money in my first house, but then I was a millennial who got it back because I bought again <laughs> afterward after the Great Recession. So that was a really interesting observation. Uh, help me to, could you expand a little bit on more on you know, different, sometimes you see really clear continuities across the generations or sort of a trend down or a trend up. Sometimes you see these sharp shifts. And there appears to be one between Gen X and millennials, specifically related to safety and the slow life. You write that millennials are the first generation in American history in which the majority of 25 to 39-year-olds are not married. And of course, no surprise, there is the fewest children of any generation in American history then as well. What changed between Gen X and millennials? Yeah, um, there were a couple of, of trends. So, I mean, one is actually a good thing, which is that the teenage pregnancy rate went yeah. down by huge, quite a bit. Huge change. Yeah. We talked about that all the time in the 1990s, and then it's yeah. just not even an issue to talk about anymore, hardly. Yeah, yeah, certainly not as much. I mean, it's, it's gone right. way, way, way down. Right. And that started in that transition between Gen X and millennials. Um, I think that's, a, that's, that's part of it. Um, but, you know, there's also some other reasons, like individualism, you know, like um, just... And that's that started with boomers and built into Gen X and 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 then grew with with millennials, but yeah, that idea that oh you know to to have kids that's going to mean a, a lot of sacrifice and that's just not something that I want to do, um, and I think that that certainly plays you know a, a role in that in that trend for sure. Um, now you observe that technology since the mid-20th century has broken the generational cycle. What do you mean? What's the generational cycle there? So there's a book that came out in 1991, also called Generations, that advanced the theory that generations come in cycles, that there's four different types, and that they cycle in and out throughout history in conjunction with big events. 
So, you know, that book makes a pretty strong case, you know, for the generations we had data on up to that point, but then it starts to break down. Um, so it works pretty well up to boomers. It starts to wobble a little bit with Gen X. For example, those authors said that Gen X had low self-esteem. In fact, it's the opposite because individualism was growing. And then it really completely, the wheels completely fall off when you get to millennials because their theory was millennials were going to be collectivistic, very civically oriented, um, and just that, that did not turn out to be the case. You know, there's lots of great things about millennials in terms of how hard they work to get college educations. They've done very well economically, but being very civically oriented, well, maybe in the case of some politicians, perhaps, um, but some people would argue even that, I think. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, the, when I was, apathy was sort of the name of the game in the college scene, late 1990s, early 2000s. And then the thought was, oh, you're going to see a whole lot more activism. It just doesn't appear that that was the case. You have seen significant shifts and complaints. And of course, then you have this huge spike in 2020. Um, of course, that's not really based on the colleges because and young adults because of the pandemic and the way that that happened. Yeah, exactly there. So yeah, you didn't really see that expected, uh, expected, um, kind of backlash there or, or cycle. Um, you know, when I'm talking with people about cultural change, um, some people see it as essentially volatile that essentially it's the backlash thesis there. This generation does this, so this generation does this. And there's a lot of back and forth, more like a pendulum swing. And there's others who see it as linear, and that could either be progress or regress. Um, what do you see from the data? It's mostly linear. So the pendulum swing argument is more like that cyclical argument yeah, right. of generations. And for the most part, no, technology continues to become more convenient and advanced individualism continues to grow it takes different it has kind of different flavors in each generation but it, it's continued to progress the life strategy slow life has continued to slow down you know so that's a pretty linear movement you do get cycles in terms of mental health um that's where there's there's some of that but that you know, that's not necessarily something people want or decide is going to happen. So that's not a conscious thing of I'm going to rebel against this generation. That's just a product of the way technology has um, basically made things better or worse. And that does seem to cycle in and out. That, um, for example, for a lot of millennials doing, say, instant messaging or, you know, MySpace, if you remember that, it was a way to connect, but it wasn't mandatory. It wasn't something everybody was doing. It, it wasn't something that took hours and hours and hours out of the day. Um, it didn't interfere when teens were with each other face-to-face. -face. And then for Gen Z, all of that changed. It became mandatory. It became something that took up hours. Uh, it was, you know, that smartphones were something that even when you work together with your friends in person, that sometimes people were still taking out the phone and they were just spending a lot less time with each other face to face um, than millennials did at the same age. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of mental health, I, I presume you've noticed the same thing I have that sort of the mainstream media spigot has been thrown wide open of pushback on a lot of the therapeutic changes in the last 
maybe even just half a generation in some ways. Have you noticed the same thing, or if so, any theories on why that's the case? Uh, say a little bit more about what you mean. Yeah, so what I mean is all of a sudden with the Times, the Atlantic, and all these places are publishing about how everything's become trauma, and that's a problem. Everything is self-diagnosed mental illness, and that's a problem. Um, th- th- it just It seems like all of a sudden I saw it everywhere, the questioning of the therapeutic capture of all of life and the seeming the seeming search for everybody to under you know to identify their under underlying traumas um and that's what i'm talking about i don't know if you've seen the same thing that's but if you haven't that's fine <laughs> just yeah no I, I know what you mean so i i i think there's two different threads here so one yeah. is um and i think what you're referring to is this that people have said you know oh the growth and therapy speak Right. Yes. You know, maybe that's yeah. maybe that's not the best of ideas. Right. And yes, the expansion of what trauma is that it, that used to be a word used for. You know, people came back from war, yeah. and now it can be. You know, my friend was mean to me. Right. Um, and I don't mean to make light of yeah. you know people who really do experience trauma, but that's the problem that many people have pointed right. out of the definition expanding is then if everything is trauma, nothing is trauma. Right. People right. have said that. So there, there is that, and so there's, there's the pushback against, against that. However, some of that pushback says, actually, the way we're doing this is contrary to therapy. Yeah. So yeah. Um, coddling yeah. of the American mind is a great yeah. example of that. Yeah, exactly. That says, yeah. you know, actually, when you do therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy says, challenge those negative right. beliefs that you have. Mm-hmm. Don't go looking for trauma. Don't go looking for the negative. In fact, you should do the opposite of not assuming that someone is insulting you. Instead, realizing there might be other reasons of mm-hmm. not being negative, of not taking that us versus them, you know, right. point of view. So, you know, that that's certainly out there as well that, you know, if we actually were following the most effective <laughs> right. therapy of yeah. CBT, then we would yeah. not be focusing on all that as yeah. much. Oh, exactly, exactly. That's I was recently doing a podcast where this topic came up, and that was the exact point <laughs> that I made. Um, I've also read a lot from your your uh, frequent collaborator Jonathan Haidt on that topic, especially. Um, uh, Gene, your your top your chapter on Gen X contains a, a fascinating insight. You describe describe the treadmill of middle class prosperity. Expectations increase and satisfaction decreases. And you write this in in contrast, most people can find meaning in their lives by helping others. Intrinsic goals are not just more meaningful, but are also more attainable. Probably why they are linked to greater happiness. Um, have you seen that that trend toward extrin- extrinsic goals of, of wealth, especially, has that continued with the younger generations after Gen X, or have they gone back to more intrinsic goals? Yeah, it, it has continued. So, um, for example, there's um, a survey of entering college students that asks about important life goals. And one of them is the importance of being, quote, very well off financially. So this, they have, there's data on that going back to the late 1960s when it was the boomers who were college students. And so the late boomers, the importance of that starts to increase. So, you know, back in the late 60s, maybe 45 or so percent said that was important. And it starts to grow. It grows the most, you know, in the 70s through the 80s. But then it keeps inching up year after year. And the most recent data we have from a couple of years ago was it, it reached an all-time high. I think it was at 83% of 
said that was important. So it's continued to inch higher. So definitely a growth in that focus on extrinsic goals. So things like money, fame, and image. So there's some disadvantages to that approach. Um, there is an advantage though in that Gen Z, for example, is very practical, you know, and focused on focusing on end goals can be a very practical, you know, way to go. The downside is if you're just focused on extrinsic goals and you don't have the intrinsic of the inherent joy of doing something or building relationships, it's a sad way to live. It's like showing up to a job where you're just doing it to get a paycheck, going to school just to get the degree or the grade. Um, it's kind of meaningless. Yeah. And I think that's something a lot of young people are struggling with. I was hoping you'd give a different answer <laughs> that that had changed. I didn't think so. You probably saw the same survey I did a, a couple months ago that showed that trust over time in family or interest in trust in family, government, religion, and everything was just in really almost collapse. But the one thing that was up was want to make more money. And I thought, oh, that's... Yeah, that's not going to end well. <laughs> that is going to be a real struggle. Now, let's let's turn it um, uh, specifically here toward religion. What would you say is your book's most important finding related to religion? Well, basically that the decline in religiosity is real. Yeah. So, um, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, there was a lot of back and forth on this. It, it was, okay, yes affiliation is down, but they're still going to religious services. Or, okay, going to religious services, we now acknowledge yep, that's down, but private beliefs, so things like a belief in God or private prayer, that, that's still there. Well, now that's down too. Um, same thing with some of the generational trends. The idea was, okay, this is down for millennials when they're you know, teens and young adults, right. but once they get married and have kids, right. they will come back to religion and that didn't turn out to be true either. Then the last one was, well, okay, they're not religious, but they're spiritual. Still spiritual, yeah. Not true either. Spirituality is basically more or less the same. Well, religiosity has gone down. So it hasn't, spirituality hasn't replaced religiosity. Yeah. It was interesting. You, um, <laughs> you, you joke about how millennials are faulted for killing everything. <laughs> Um, and uh, <laughs> I remember that phase of uh, BuzzFeed articles, I think. <laughs> millennials had killed everything. Of course, everything. BuzzFeed. Yeah, yes. of course. Look, if, right. if I'm going to be a millennial talking about this, I'm going to bring up might BuzzFeed. Might as well go to, bu go to this BuzzFeed. <laughs> but but you, you point out, if you're going to add to that list, it would appear that it was the millennials who killed religion in the 2000s. And if if I remember correctly, you cite specifically the the focus on the self and the personal journey and then specifically, especially the role that individualism played in widespread acceptance of gay rights, um, which I would then, of course, observe that that's connected to what we've been talking there about marriage and family, um, a focus on the self and a shunning of too much responsibility that would constrain lifestyle. Um, and also with, um, yeah, just higher expectations of self-fulfillment in different ways and those extrinsic values versus intrinsic Um you know, there's, an, there's another another thing that just stuck with me, and I just haven't stopped talking about what I've read in this book over the last couple of months since I finished it. And, and you, you talk about, well, there's a lot of things that stand out to me. One of them was how 
uh, boomers' poor mental health may be related to persistently high substance abuse. Um, that's something that did not go away and was particular to their generation. I mentioned earlier millennials as the richest generation because of education and buying homes after the Great Recession. The millennials, we mentioned this as well earlier, make more money but feel less wealthy because they have high expectations driven in part by social media. And this really stood out to me because they spend so much on child care so that, ha- that, um, that both parents can work. And, of course, related to that, then the cost of childcare has skyrocketed because of the demand. So it eats up more percentage, not just of your income as well. But I have to say, we've kind of waited all, all the way 30 minutes into this interview for me to ask about, it has to be the standout finding, I think, of your book. It's about Gen Z, born to the 1995 to 2012, and their attitudes towards sex and gender. Um, more than half believe that there are more than two genders. Um, and they believe that older generations are ignorant uh, compared to these progressive beliefs. Now, you mention you, you do not you not you do not cite this as definitive. You just throw it out there as a theory. I will say as the host that it has to be a factor here. You mentioned pornography as one of the things that could be affecting this shift. And I would say not coincidentally, the sex recession of millennials has become the sex depression, as you describe in Gen Z. And also, I'll just ask in general, was this kind of views on Gen Z and sex and gender, was that also kind of the most surprising or significant finding of your book? Or is that something you entirely expected going into the writing of this book? Well, I had first found the decline in sexual activity among young adults um, five, seven years ago. Uh, And it was a huge surprise at the time you know, with online dating and Tinder and hookup apps and, and, and more acceptance for premarital sex, it was very unaccepted and un- unexpected because there's more, you'd think it would be the opposite. So it was kind of shocking when that, when that showed up, um, you know, in the, in the national data sets that for young adults in particular, fewer of them were having sex. And I would you know, not necessarily have, have predicted that. Um, some of it is because people get buried later so there's a good segment of they'd gotten married young, then they probably wouldn't be in that category of not being sexually active. But the average age of marriage is now about 28. So that's, that's part of, of what's going on there. But, you know, it was, it was very surprising. Yeah. It was, it, it's surprising in part because the media narratives don't match and, and sort of the, the fictional and film, they don't, those narratives don't match the reality. Um, the realities are that, the people who are having sex are the people who are unattached, and those are the people who are fulfilled. But the surveys just show the opposite. The people having sex and more fulfilled in life are the people who are married and committed. So it just doesn't seem to line up with what we see reinforced in media. Here's my last question. Um, you know, of course, I, I work for a ministry here at the Gospel Coalition that advances Christian faith in the in the church. And so maybe I'm just seeing what I'm conditioned uh, to be able to see here. But I I cannot help but observe a trend across generations in your book. And this is what it looks like. More technology means more individualism and fewer social connections, such as the church and and family uh, in there, which means then also higher rates of mental illness and demands from, you mentioned here, the cry bullies for emotional safety in a merciless culture of, of outrage without absolution. Okay, that was a big, big, long statement there. But I have to say this, 
that that description that is traced through your book is exactly what my religion, at least, would warn us to expect. And yet every trend seems to indicate Americans are clamoring for more technology, more individualism, and also in some ways more retribution toward one another. What, what, what am I missing? Set me straight. Correct me. What am I missing here? This is exactly what I would expect and in many ways fear would happen to us. Yeah. Um, I think that's the problem is we don't always have a clear-eyed view of these things that we want. And I, technology is a great example of that, um, particularly because let's just take social media. Spending a lot of time on social media is very easy to do yeah. because the companies have poured billions yeah. into making sure that their users are on the app as long as possible for as much of the day as possible. They call it engagement. I hate that word because it makes it sound like it's such a good thing, yeah. you know, um, but that's their word for it and that's how it's gone. So we have that and it's conspiring against what we actually need as human beings, which is to be with each other face to face and to have s several close relationships rather than say you know hundreds of followers where it's a more shallow relationship and to focus on those intrinsic things of those actual human relationships rather than chasing those things that are hard to get and not actually that fulfilling in the long run like getting lots of likes and followers being a great example of that so, you know, I think we're just in this dilemma, especially just right now, where this technology was supposed to connect us. And instead, it's coincided with record levels of loneliness and depression. So clearly it hasn't worked. And we need to reconsider our relationship with, with that technology. Um, and I, I think adults need to do that. And I think even more, we have to think about protecting kids like raising the minimum age for social media to 16 and actually enforcing that. Well, you, um, you do not hold back on this. There's, I love this quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to conclude here. Um, my guest here is Benjean Twangy. Uh, her book, we're talking about generations. I think you've already seen how the insights that I've derived from it and, and heard about all the different things that I, I think people, no matter where you are in life, can benefit from. But this, is, this quote um, stood out by technology. You say, it has isolated us from each other, sowed political division, fueled income inequality, spread pervasive pessimism, widened generation gaps, stolen our attention, and is the primary culprit, culprit for a mental health crisis among teens and young adults. So what I'm thinking, Gene, is put down that smartphone, talk to your neighbor at least after they've listened to this or watched this interview. Does that sound right? It, it does, although I have to point out what I said before that quote or, or right after yeah. it, which is that technology is not all bad or all no. good, that it has given us the gift of time. I mean, yes. think about that. Think yes. about the way our grandparents and great-grandparents lived, that they, they, their life expectancy was probably only to about 60 or 65, yeah. And that they had to spend so much time doing laundry and cooking and all of these other things just to survive. Yeah. So technology has given us that gift of time. But it is, it is up to us how to use it. Yeah. 
Amen. One one of the things that that I run, one of the things that I run into a lot, is that I think it's part of the American spirit to think that technology can overcome all of our challenges, and there's a there's a built in bias toward technology, toward that as seeing that as progress. And so, yeah, I, I want to make sure people don't walk away from this thinking that I've misrepresented you there because you're just trying to help us see the potential downsides and some of how that's played out. We seem to assume the positives, um, but you're right. We've, we've got time and time is one reason we're able to record this podcast and, and people be able to listen to it. And now go out there and meet your neighbors. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Uh, again, my guest here has been Gene Twangy, author of Generations. Check it out. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.